Wagner James Au was writing about technology for Wired magazine when in 2003 he accepted an unusual assignment and joined Second Life to become the first ever embedded journalist in a virtual world. Wandering around with an avatar in a crisp white suit and homage to Tom Wolfe, he had a front row seat from which he described the creativity, the drama, and the controversy of the rapidly evolving metaverse. Notably, although we did pay him for his work, Linden Lab made no editorial decisions and had no control over his writing. He captured the experience on his blog, New World Notes, and eventually expanded it to cover many other virtual worlds and VR and related technologies. In 2008, he wrote The Making of Second Life, and he's just published a new book called Making a Metaverse That Matters. It broadly covers the genesis, the evolution, purpose, and meaning of the now numerous platforms that offer open virtual worlds. In this conversation, we look back on Second Life, as well as covering much of the same material as is found in his new book, such as whether virtual worlds can make us better people, whether they're for everyone, and what impact AI will have on them and through it on us. It was really great to reconnect with Wagner. I hadn't seen him in several years face to face, and so it was a delight to have him up for this conversation. Hey. Hi. How's it going? Good. It's, it's a good while. to see you. Yeah. yeah, you too. Yeah. All right, my first question to start us off. You've got this blog, New World Notes, yes. which is amazing and talks Thank all you. about the whole world of, of this stuff. And you just recently wrote something talking about, are we going to replace actors with AIs, right? Oh, yeah. What, what's your perspective there? Yeah, well, actually, I first got outraged because uh, an AI evangelist was just going, well, maybe uh, now the studios are going to, they're just going to start switching over to Unreal's MetaHuman or something, and they'll just get rid of actors because of the uh, SAG strike. Right. And so, you know, like I get morally outraged. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? No, I'm, no, I am angry. But then I started thinking, okay, well, actually, just from a practical business perspective, would you really want to get rid of human actors? Right. And then there's all of these issues, even with, you know, because the uh, Uncanny Valley issue, that's, right. I, I was looking at Unreal's latest demo, and they're pretty did. good. I saw it in the clip. You, you put it in there, and I watched yeah. it myself. And I did think that it was pretty good, like yeah. certainly better than anything I've ever seen. But yeah. then you made the point, which was that it was a little, it still felt flat, right? Yeah, I, I said, well, you've crossed the uncanny valley and now you're in the mediocre gulf. Because <laughs> yeah. he, he acts like an actor who just got, is taking theater 101, he's kind of really unexpressive and then he kind of goes smiling a little bit and then it's like, yeah. I mean, so it's like, you were it. talking about like two different things, right? One you were talking about is like the, the and what's the cost anyways, right? Like right. the cost actually might be high to like yeah. rent create those actors. And then your second point is, and they might fall a little flat or they, I think you said it was like a student, you know, in Theater yeah. 101 on their first yeah. day. And it's like, okay, that was a nice performance, but not very good. And then also, I mean, do the AI people know that's actually the business model is you have the actors marketing yeah. the movie. You can't do that with an AI, at least as far as we could tell. I mean, you could probably create an agent at some point, but to actually have a personal, feel a personal connection like, oh, well, Tom Cruise is going to do these stunts. So I feel like I actually have to watch that. So, you know, I have another perspective on it as well. And I wonder if you agree, which is that 
the very fact that an actor has a backstory, that they have a journey that brought them to this film, or that they, you know, gotten a big divorce before they, you know, made the movie or whatever. I think the connectedness we have, like, to the real world that we live in together, it has a degree of meaning there. I think the yeah. same thing could be true. Like, I'm an advisor to Midjourney, and I oh, think cool. Midjourney is obviously like so amazing. Um, but when you there's this interesting question, right? Which is when you see a really beautiful work of art in Midjourney, it's obviously in many ways, many of those prints are like beyond human capability. But is there, I always ask this thought question, is there gonna be like a MoMA exhibit, which is entirely pictures say from like Midjourney, you know? From right. like, and, I, and, I, and I don't think so, but I think the reason isn't that the no. pictures aren't beautiful, it's that we wanna go see an artist's exhibit because of that artist's journey their story yeah. right like the reason they took those Biography. pictures or they painted that or they sculpted yeah, yeah yeah so i wonder about that with ai actors i kind of feel like if you gave if you told me an actor and you, you know you swapped it in and said this is an ai actor even if its performance was like incredibly emotionally compelling i wonder whether people would go to that movie as much even then yeah yeah really skeptical in the background i could see that on a certain level but even then that becomes a SAG issue because the uh, extras are part of the uh, the SAG contract. So they'll, yeah, they'll have a question. It'll for sure be AI will enhance characters. That's already happening. I mean, that like Lord of the Rings, I mentioned, they had like NPCs Amazing. and they Gollum, did right? that. that the so yeah, that exists. But yeah, actual, you know, like what they call above the line credited actors, I really doubt humans are going away. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, I... I think there's so much resonance to that, right? Because it relates to, like, one of the reasons I think virtual worlds are compelling, right? Is that there are people yeah. behind the actors. Exactly. I guess we can talk about AI later and, like, give both of our thoughts on AI. But I do think that's a really interesting example that, in my mind, somehow does connect to, like, you know, virtual worlds and what, uh, uh, you know, what they mean to people. Um, what do you think is the difference between journalism in mm -hmm. real life? Now, you yeah. were a journalist. You were, well, you were a journalist from the beginning, but you were five right. years with Wired before right. you started in Second Life. What do you think the difference between being a journalist in a virtual world compared to a journalist in a real world is? Well, it's changed so much um, because I started uh, as a freelance writer, uh, you know, in the early 2000s, late 90s, and a lot of the interviews were still done on phone, and yeah. so you'd have to record. But um, I had a lot of thought of that when I was doing the embedded journalism in Second Life, because basically what I'd end up with is I'd, uh, it was mostly through text. So I'd end up with giant chat transcripts. Uh, I usually, I'd actually print them up and I'd have to go through it and find the right quotes and stuff. And, and it really occurred to me, I, I'm really hmm. not doing anything that different because um, as I did more and more interviews, like real world interviews, I, you know, you start messaging people on Twitter yeah. or on, you know, Facebook or on, you text people. And so um, they've, they've kind of merged pretty closely as we've gotten more and more online. Like I'll do in-person conversations, but most interviews are, you know. Nowadays in Second Life, when you're in there interviewing people, how many, what fraction of people are comfortable using or are choosing to use voice as opposed to text? It's interesting because I still prefer text myself, um, <laughs> just because I'm, you know, old B. But uh, I'd say the majority are on voice, or at least they'll start with voice. Yeah? That I've I've seen, yeah, like especially in the welcome areas and so on. Like uh -huh. the old school people who started before voice will still prefer text. Yeah. But uh, you know, I'd have to see. I'd love to do more embedded journalist reporting. It's um, you know I can only do it part time now, but. Um, 
Yeah. Um, it is an interesting point you make, though, and I think this is one of the important virtual world things that, as you know, as we both know, you could like do a text conversation with people, capture the whole thing, including, you know, what bystanders were saying or whatever, and then go back and go through that and look for your marks and look for your edits and what you want to right. talk about. That is fascinating, isn't it? That that, I mean, like, that's obviously obviously as as we know, you know, people have learned to use text in Second Life. In fact, in certain ways, I think Second Life kind of preceded, right? Like everybody using text messaging, right? Because that that was, you know, I Pretty mean, much, text yeah. messaging was yeah. around, but yeah. we were still using flip phones. You know, as you as right. we both remember, and we were talking about before this, the iPhone came out in 07 right. when Second Life was like already like quite big. Yeah. Um, and so I think that in many ways, you know, Second Life exposed people to the idea of like social conversational things happening, but entirely with text, you know, and I guess now we have Discord, yeah. right? Like we're really that that kind of thing is happening on an even larger scale in Discord. Yeah. But it's interesting, like Second Life was kind of a first explorer of that. And you as a journalist were like, oh, this is weird. You know, I've you even say it preceded social media. Yeah, pretty much 20, 2003 and like, Twitter. Uh, beat Friendster and all the old Orkut, uh, which I still love. But yeah, <laughs> like Orkut you, still up and running. Um, I think because so Br the Brazilians took it over and then they Google sold it, and so it's totally. I think I it's only a Brazilian that. product. I totally remember, which is Orkut. really interesting. Yeah, but um, yeah, really, because um, Second Life had kind of all the social networking capabilities, or most of them, and so people would be having multiple conversations with multiple people and also groups so yeah i remember when we used to do company meetings or town halls or whatever and it was so interesting right because well sometimes i'd use like mixed media like i'd use my voice to answer so that i can answer more quickly but i would be reading the questions and of course everybody else would be like chatting back and forth like i remember like tough times in the company like i remember when i stepped down and, yeah. and announced like mark kingdon coming in it was a big live meeting. I was actually in London, I think at the time, at least for one of the meetings, and it was like an all hands. And, you know, that that experience that you remember of the Lindens, like pulling no punches with questions, right? And in part, that was because everybody could just chat the questions yeah. in text, yeah. right? And I guess it, it was less, and as we know now, you know, it was, it was less scary to say something controversial or aggressive or whatever in text. And so I'd yeah. sit there and try to handle all the questions, but, you know, they were coming at me. Yeah, I kind of prefer text still. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like, especially, I, you know, I've written about this before. A lot of people are in Second Life because they have difficulties either physically or mentally in the real world, mm -hmm. like people who have Asperger's. Mm -hmm. And so they actually need the text yeah. because voice is so challenging. So, yeah, that's that's something to consider. What I've noticed with the, the newer uh, metaverse platforms like VRChat, it's all voice or mostly voice. Yeah. So that's that's changed. But uh, I don't know. Like you mentioned, Discord is really huge, pro probably because so, people want to have that text reference still. Did you really did you did you feel like Second Life kind of suited you in the sense that you did like that text experience better than voice? I, I agree. That is kind of interesting. right? In other words, without being too personal, it's like, did you feel kind of like Second Life helped you or worked for you in that regard? I definitely prefer to... it. I'm, I'm usually more uh, shy in when I meet people first yeah. time and just kind of would prefer to have text and think through my thoughts. So, yeah. It's funny because you know me too over all these years. And um, although I can be, you know, charismatic and gregarious or whatever, only when I know people. Yeah. Because uh, I'd say I'm the same way. You know, I was never comfortable like walking up to somebody 
cold that I didn't know yeah. and just talking to them. Like, that's not my kind of thing at all. Because I wonder, like, here's another question is, would you say that you lived in Second Life? <laughs> yes or no? Or, and as compared to others? No, I, you know, definitely I, I saw, I, I visualized my home there, like when I go there, but yeah, yeah. I would go in. Yeah, you, you remembered know. it, right? Like we remembered our homes there for sure. Yeah, yeah. But I, I'm with you. I think maybe I'm curious as to what your reasons are, but I would also say that, well, of course, I mean, I like, in some ways it would be difficult for somebody other than, it would be, it would be difficult for me to love, be able to love Second Life any more than, I mean, I, I love it a lot more than everybody else. That didn't make sense. Um, you know, I really love it, but I don't feel like I live there. You know, respectfully, you know, I don't feel like I if it, if, it were, if people were voting on something in Second Life, I would say like, well, you know, I don't know whether I deserve to be included because I don't really live here, you know? Yeah, I, it definitely feels like a well, for me, it feels like work or mm -hmm. and, and I mean, we're more vocational, like it's a place yeah. that I, I am kind of attached to to see it evolve and grow. So I'm always excited to come back and see how it's changed. Even my neighborhood, like I've been, uh, I have an office in Waterhead. What's, what's changed in, in Waterhead? Yeah. What's changed in your neighborhood? Um, no, there's been some <laughs> weird buildings that kind of in the horizon and stuff. And uh, I, because I have the uh, Snow Crash Shrine, there's an official Snow Crash Shrine next to a 50-foot pot plant because uh, he created the first virtual plant and he made it a giant marijuana plant. And you'd have to pray to, to have water come and water it. <laughs> Uh, Rob Wright, I think he created, and yeah, so I, really? that's that's my office. But I've noticed like the water has started rising sometimes, and I'll have to adjust the land and move things around a little bit. So, yeah, but no, I love coming back and seeing there the neighborhood is, and talking to people. There is something so magical. You're right about like coming back and seeing how the neighborhood has changed. I remember when you used to go on those walking tours when the world oh, yeah. was quite small, right? Yeah. What was that? Did you try to go through all the simulators? Is that what you did? I did. I did in 2003 when we were still in beta. <laughs> and I just said, well, let's, that'd be an interesting story. I'm going to start at like 1 a.m. Like a pilgrimage. Yeah. yeah. And just walk across. It was just one continent. And I remember like going and then some guy with a giant crucifix started following me. And it was a crucifix that was a gun. I guess an anime reverence. And so another guy with a gun yeah, and right. like they yeah, just started right. randomly following like, okay i'm just walking the world like we just walked and walked and you know go up and down rivers was it like a lawnmower did you go back and forth from left to right or did you i did of... i guess i'm gonna hit every sim but i want to do like a long walk all the way back to my um my original place which uh, where was that like it was um near waterhead so one of yeah. the original continents but yeah it was cool how much do you think the mainland where all the servers are connected to each other and you know you're kind of forced to have neighbors like in yeah the real los angeles i always right. say secondly you you live in los angeles and second life's about the size of los angeles yeah um you know how much do you think the mainland contributed that that for those you know dear friends um you know the mainland which was the parts of second life that were all connected together into one huge space where anybody could own land next to anybody else and it could be really small parcels how much do you think the cultural experience of the mainland set second life apart or is different than the idea of like the islands right because this is a very metaverse or metaverses kind of yeah. question yeah i i was thinking about that for uh, making a metaverse that matters because that was one of the big um, changes is in uh, the the metaverse of snow crash it's all one contiguous world so you have to travel like you can get in a, a like a motorcycle or right. like a train or something but you would have to go from one part to the next and it's part of it's 
uh, uh, Neil Stevenson said, well, so you don't break immersion. You keep in that yeah. and also you serendipitously meet people. Yeah. And then so the islands, you would actually have to teleport. So actually your screen goes black and you have the, the teleport screen. So it changes. And yeah, I, um, I think the mainland was really valuable, still valuable for having that sense of serendipity. You're going to walk like I was doing well just even meeting neighbors or just walking and all of a sudden you connect with someone and yeah. just randomly meet people whereas with teleporting it's much more conscious like you know more or less what you're going to go into and that's yeah it's changed the culture a fair amount yeah teleporting breaks the immersion I mean we yeah. all learned that later with VR goggles where you similarly to move somebody across a space unfortunately when they're wearing a VR headset you have to teleport them because otherwise they'll get sick if they're moving like with the stick right but if mm. you teleport you lose that sense of continuity right and transition you know from one place to another well let me ask you would you have if you could go back would you get rid of or minimum or even as a cost of teleporting yeah. so it's not just how like maybe you had to pay 50 lindens or something what would you do i love let's dwell on that that's a great one to talk about right in yeah. fact I've i remember the, whole... the debate about it like should we add point-to-point -point yeah. teleportation and you remember you know we did add we initially added telehubs right? right so we started off with you, you well we started like off in New with, York City right it was kind of a did did were you there though at the time where you really did have to kind of walk everywhere like there was no teleporting at all like before telehubs yeah yeah, yeah. The very like you fly usually just to because if I remember correctly and I know my, this was my intention and it still is like I find I find the idea very compelling that you do have to walk everywhere. And so I think in Linden World and then in the first uh, release of Second Life, I, I think that we didn't have the telehubs. And so you did actually have to walk everywhere. Yeah. Um, here's what I, I, I think that worlds are made real in part by their limitations. And I would say that's yeah. a different perspective than I would have had in 2006. Like I think that's a younger me would have said, it's all about being able to redo everything and do whatever you want in that almost like kind of techno libertarian utopian kind of way like right. we should all be able to live whatever we're living exactly living. i don't feel that way anymore yeah. i feel like part of what makes real life compelling are things like its length you know the fact that we are going to die you know yeah. and i think the fact that you know you're in this part of second life and there's a party over in that other part and you can't get there in time sounds good to me you know, like that sounds yeah. like a limitation that makes sense. Like I've been really like, if you ask me like what, I wanna ask you too, like if you ask me what would I do differently, I'd really try to like look at that issue a bit more and say like, what if you really are born at a certain point in the world and you really do have to travel, you know, using energy around, right? And like yeah. you said, right, maybe, maybe you can accumulate, you know, maybe you can get a jetpack or something right? and you can go really fast. But I really do like, I, my gut would be, I would stick with, you have to go everywhere. There, there are laws of physics around movement, and those laws right. cannot be broken. The virtual world, it's the actual yeah. virtual world that does have laws of physics. I mean, I, I talk about that, um, like comparing Second Life with Minecraft, with just yeah. with the idea that it is a virtual world, and if you are not careful, you will get killed, and you'll have to start yeah. over again. And that really made it compelling for people to really understand the user interface and explore and learn how to create, like. Um, my friend Amber Case, who I interviewed, she's, sure. a, she's a design great. guru, and she said, "Yes, yeah, really like Maslow's hierarchy. You have to first survive, yep. and you have to build shelter, yeah. and you go up the ladder yep. of learning the virtual world. And when you learn it, then you can start thinking about art and being super creative. But you have to learn to f fight off the creepers first. So, 
Yeah, I'd say, yeah, I mean, and you know, because yeah. the early Linden World was like that. You know, you had yeah. combat and you had that. So I would think that if we kept it that way, uh, uh, the growth would have been very interesting. I think it would, think? would have been much bigger. I think that question, let, let's jump to that because I've got a question about that, right? Like, you talk a lot about how we didn't call it a game and how yeah. the, the idea of a game is really a compelling baseline. One of the things I wonder, though, is my question for you is, what is the game that everybody, um, all ages, all genders, all backgrounds, you know, like what is the game that everybody wants to play? Yeah. That we should have, you know, that we could have made Second Life, you know, feel like more of a game. But I'd ask you, what's that game? I'd say the to start would be kind of a Halloween party experience where you... you How would that work? Costume, you know, you're dressing up in costume and so you're already... Because that's the and you're very, voting voting on everybody else's costume or something. Um, like? You could add some game mechanics, but that would be the kind of game is to everyone gets to dress up as something, and they either guess who you are or that's part of the the social lubricant. But um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I mentioned that in the book, like really the very act mm. of going in a virtual world and pretending that the 3D pixels are a world and that are. 3D pixels that are moving around are people as opposed to just other, you know, like their avatars are real. Right. That itself is a role playing game. That's like that's like a fundamental game, like on a level of when we're kids and we pretend on a playground. So even that aspect is the game. And so really build out a structure with that. And so like if you're either going to do it as a survival game like Minecraft uh, or you could have like let's have a big fun Halloween party. And that's kind of the goal is just to you know, dress up and, and then create a place where I definitely agree with you. Right. Is that I think for a lot of people, the fun of Minecraft is staying in survival mode, like you say, climbing yeah. that hierarchy, because if you're able to just do I mean, and of course, other people have done the things like build an actual working Apple II yeah. computer or whatever, using redstone oh, totally. blocks and everything. But I think that. Um, doing that in survival mode, right, adds this challenge. And like you're saying, yeah. also, I, I like what you're saying there, you know, also causes you to climb Maslow's ladder. And so you, you have this natural kind of narrative arc of self, self-development, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, you, you got to survive first. You know, yeah, I, I think just like surviving against the laws of physics in the world, you know, like whatever mm -hmm. those laws are, largely. I do agree. I think that's a kind of a game-like thing. Um, I think that I always had the worry that, and I think this is in some sense true, we can look at stuff that's happened, you know, since Second Life, but I always had the worry that if you game, if you made things too game-like, right. it would lead you down a type of games path, like a shooter or something, where you would lose the diversity that the world yeah. had in terms of who it appealed to. And I think I would say, you know, that one of the big problems with VR headsets, right, has been that they're not adequately diverse because you know different hairstyles gender uh you know age uh comfort you know sensitivity to nausea right these things are like very very important for wearing a vr headset yeah and it causes the vr headset wearers to be this much much smaller subset of people oh, yeah. and unfortunately much more homogenous right right and i always felt like second life had to be a party in a way like i would always use the thing like would you go to a party that had only men you know, or something right. like that. Like, no. And, and so um, I always thought about it that way. That, that I think it was really fortunate that both text, like we were talking about earlier, you know, text, 
the fact that you used it on a screen. <laughs> of course, in the beginning, you had to have a bitching computer to use Second yeah. Life, but yeah. you know, like nowadays, you don't. And so, it's pretty inclusive in terms of who likes it. So I never wanted to like that idea when I think about a game. What what would the game be? I think part of the reason why I was so like it's not a game, and of course, you know, Dwight shoot, you know, <laughs> Second Life is not a game. I think part of the reason that I was so hardcore about that was I wanted to include everybody. Yeah. Because I felt like if we didn't do that, we would fail, you know, because it was intended to be such a social experience. Right. I mean, there's different wording, like say a, a play space or something that, you know, you put in the verb what you can do and, and encourage people to at least yeah. like play and socialize is important. Um, I mean, we get in, I get into that with the book too. Like, you know, should we even call the second life? Like yeah. that's, I talked to Hunter Walk, who kind of drove the effort to call it Second yeah, Life, and right. now he's a you know big famous venture capitalist, yep, he sure and he's is. like, yeah, maybe not, but um, you know, I also mentioned that that also helped encourage people who are not gamers to right. try it out, and so you had all these quirky academics and artists and things like that. So, yeah, I think there's a way, but it would be challenging to make it game-like, but still encourage people to come in that were not necessarily gamers and also encourage them to do whatever they want. There yeah. is a balance, but it would be really tough to pull off. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was a hard element of it. And then what do you think were the other things that Second Life, um, what are some other things that we kind of did right or enabled for people, you know, like, so you're talking about text. Yeah. Well, the prim creation, that's still yeah. just amazing. And yeah. um, We've talked about that before. Moving the move to mesh has kind of de-emphasized the right. fact that you can create anything. And what's your take on that? Air. Moving to mesh, you think that was net, net good, net bad? Uh, kind of both, really. Yeah. Um, it's Seems definitely weird. boosted the economy, but um, right. as I write in "Make the Metaverse That Matters," it's really shifted the economy and the culture to kind of the uh, what Nikki calls kind of the Malibu culture, where because you can make your avatar yeah. super hot, then all of a sudden you have this arms race of everyone trying to look super hot. And then that kind of lends itself to, okay, well, if I'm gonna look hot, then I'm gonna have a nightclub, I'm gonna have some bitching cars and a mansion. And so it really kind of all of a sudden, from just the fact that you have mesh, creates this all kind of consumerist, materialist yeah. society. and so. Uh, there's a lot of Second Life has been shifted toward that for good and bad. I mean, you know, if you want people like doing that's totally cool. Like there's a lot of kind of Kim Kardashian yeah. role play, but I yeah, wonder Mesh though, has done that. What kind of, again, it's kind of like my question about what kind of game, but I like your answer. You started to answer, maybe we should go back to that, which is do yeah. play Halloween, right? Play, play at Halloween yeah. uh, is like a, I think that's a good answer. An example of like, what could you call a game that, Kind of embraces everyone right and it yeah. would be like play at halloween is like a, an interesting yeah dress up and yeah, yeah have some kind of light mechanics and really <laughs> you probably want to start with kids i mean that's why roblox has become so huge is it's it started as kids now it's 25 percent are over 18 but it's so huge that's like 50 million people so yeah. but what it looks like is the kids are growing up with this but you know you start with kids and if it's mostly kids you have less of that requirement of making yeah. it a game because kids just want a, an imagination space and they're still figuring out who what they are in real life. So there's less of that in, in position of, oh, you have to choose an avatar. It's like, oh yeah, I want to try this avatar and then I'm going to change my avatar totally the next day. 
So yeah, yeah I mean, that's Ro another Roblox approach. has been, you know, Roblox has a, a CCU or, you know, an MAU that is like 50 times larger than Second Life, I think. Yeah. And, um, uh, and that's really interesting. I, I agree. I think that in many ways, Roblox, which, which got started right about the time that Second Life was kind of getting bigger, right? Yeah. Um, I think that Roblox kind of presented the offer of a Second Life, but to kids, right? Yeah. Do you think that's a good thing for kids? Well, it's, I think also it was the fact that it was a, a, a first as a simulation uh, tool for kid, like education. Yeah. And that's how it started. And so you could create right. anything. And so really like, it was like, you know, online Legos and blocks, yeah. which that aspect is very valuable. You know, like to encourage yeah. kids to be creative and also be creative with each other. That became really important in that pandemic that what kids would do is they'd play in their Roblox worlds with their actual friends that they couldn't hang out with in real life. Right. And so that's a lot of the value to Roblox. Um, they've, you know, I, I've I mentioned this in the book, they've definitely go on on the other side. You have a lot of the game mechanics that the mere fact that it's kids, there's a lot of, there should be a lot, of, lot more concern that, you know, around addiction or keeping kids right. fixated in it. The, um, the fact then, <laughs> that now you have a for-profit company and kids are literally working for the for-profit company making content. And I, I at some point, uh, Dave uh, Buzuski is gonna get subpoenaed before Congress because that's pretty, uh, that's pretty interesting, dude. The other number that I'm proud of and I think you've written about as well, in fact, I think you were one of the first people to write about this, was that um, the amount of money being made by people in Second Life is yeah. actually pretty similar to the amount being made in Roblox, even though the population size in Roblox right. is like 50 times bigger. And of course, good for Roblox in terms of the population, but yeah. what that means is that your percentage chance of being able to scratch out a meager living, right, yeah. is much lower. Yeah, you showed me that data where it was, Second Life. It was like 1,200 people in Second Life make an income right. over 10,000 right. USD right. a yeah. year. That sounds right. So a decent side income. Yeah. And yeah, Roblox's IPO mentioned it's about that. About the same. Yeah. But to do that, from that like I interviewed, uh, her name's LA Girls. She's a 20 year old uh, Jamaican girl. Right. And she made this really amazing yeah. uh, game with her boyfriend called uh, Starving Artist. Uh -huh. And she's doing really well. Like mm -hmm. she's, she didn't say specifically, but she's probably making six figures. I asked her, would she want to work at Roblox? She said, no, I'm doing good because she's probably going to start making millions. Yeah. Um, but she has to have literally tens of millions of people playing her experience yeah. to see that kind of money. And so right, right. very, very few people can do that. Whereas in Second Life, you know, you can create, uh, well, I was on a show with a, a woman who sells wedding dresses. Yep. And, you know, she was making 75,000 a year from virtual wedding dresses. Yeah. So the economy is much more equitable for the creator in Second Life. Who are some of the, who are some of the like clothing who are some of the successful designers in Second Life you remember? Oh, well, I, I have her in the book, Mishi um, uh -huh. Blueberry. Yeah. Jizem uh, is yep. her uh, first name. And she's amazing. I, and I talk about her whole journey. She was a, she was a, um, a college student in Turkey. She's from mm -hmm. Turkey. And she logged in to see, um, uh, what was his name? A really uh, popular singer in Second Life. And she just kind of, from watching the show, she's like, well, oh, actually, you know, some of these clothes could be improved and she started working on a polka dot dress and kind of built yeah. an empire and now she's uh, gone across the multiple platforms she's even in roblox 
But um, right, because she was making millions, grossing millions within five years. Yeah. What are some of the other like most interesting people experiences that you can remember seeing in Second Life? Well, of course, got to mention AM Radio. Who uh, yeah. he, uh, as we later later learned, he was a developer at IBM yeah. when IBM moved into Second Life. But he he started as an artist. He was a painter before become, joining IBM through a very kind of random course. And so, yeah, he worked on the idea, can you create artistic experiences in a virtual world? Yeah. And so he would actually hand paint like wheat fields yeah. and uh, his first most famous installation is called The Far Away. And it's yep. this vast wheat field like in Kansas. And there's a rusty train that's in the middle of the wheat field. I think field the Far Away for me, I keep coming back to that. That was one of yeah. the first pieces of art that that I saw that really moved me and that I was like, it does feel like this is a kind of artistic experience that really couldn't yeah. be had anywhere else. I think around that exactly. time people started doing those like, I remember there was a Ye Yeats poem or something that was like the fairy something and there was like- Oh, Lady Vu created the machinima. Yeah, yeah. The so I think so also, also sometimes when people would do machinima, that was really immersive and you'd, you know, you'd listen to music and you'd watch this, you know, very, very clever and hard camera work that people had done in Second Life. That was also like really inspiring yeah, to yeah, me. Yeah, really yeah, really incredible. Beautiful, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that is, uh, yeah, that's amazing. What are some, What about just crazy things you've seen people do or like, you know, out of kind of, strange social experiences right rather than like the art the background but like what about just like wacky behavior oh well <laughs> there's the, uh, the the sexual ones but uh, yeah, we'll <laughs> there's the sexual PG, one the non-sexual keep ones. this pg-13 um <laughs> damn i just i was just thinking about this the other day like this is one of the very first experiences in second life and that kind of set the, the tone was some guy had created a giant ufo yes and he was going around the world randomly teleporting people because he figured out how to make a tractor beam and sucked them up into yeah. the spaceship right? yeah and a friend of his had a uh, it was an alien he had an alien avatar so he had an anal probe but uh, <laughs> yeah so I, I i got sucked up by the the uh, ufo when we were flying around and then we met a monkey flying a biplane and so we got in with the monkey and the monkey was machine gunning people and it was just it was nuts i was just like laughing my ass off just kind of with this have you met people in real life from Second Life that oh, you totally. stayed friends with? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, like uh, uh, Beverly, uh, Bettina uh -huh. Tizzy in Second Life. Uh -huh. Text on occasion, but then I see her when I, and she's in Austin. She, uh, Bettina Tizzy, I called her the art maven of Second Life. And she, because she kind of discovered a lot of the really great artists and gave them a voice and had a group mm -hmm. called uh, Not Possible in Real Life. Uh -huh. uh, but she's, no, she's a really cool lady. And, uh, uh, very cool. She started, I think she was at MTV or something. Just, you know, really cool woman. And you, yeah, just, uh, yeah, love her. So if if you if you had been building Second Life, given what you know now, yeah. like what are some of the things you would have done differently? Well, <laughs> I'd do a lot differently. It really depends, you know, at what era we would start because, sure. you know, we started during the PC dedicated broadband pre-smartphone right. era so um 
that's a lot of how Second Life has been architected, right? It's it's yeah. assuming it's going to be on desktop, it's going to be broadband. So, you know, if I did it then, um, you know, I kind of would have assumed we'd still be on desktop. So that would be still a challenge, though. Uh, um, really, the uh, the the prim based creation that's still a brilliant breakthrough. Um, Mm-hmm. Another thing, I would have um, not launched the monetization tool so quickly. Ah, because how come? that's interesting. Um, I've seen this. What you've seen this in VR chat is is you want to really get a just a, a f- amazing acceleration of of creativity and ecosystem yeah. where people are creating for the sake of creating, for the sake of of well, some social recognition, but for contributing to the community. Right and. Uh, I think the monetization tools might have come in a bit too soon. Uh-huh. So that would be something to change slightly. Um, yeah, I, I do think a game structure, it was, you know, we launched as with a game. There was like an achievement. Not, well, it was a, a leaderboard. Oh, leaderboard. Yeah. Right, right. We put yeah. everything. I remember we put everything. I wanted to put everything on leaderboards. Yeah. Which, you know, the, the instinct was good, though. It, it kind of, it got gamed very quickly. Yeah. And so it's it's how to... Get, create a system that yeah. is difficult to game and there's there's ways around that like you want to hide some of the uh, algorithm right. so there's a little bit of mystery about why yeah. you're getting rated well and so but that just kind of as a light mechanic to keep people connected and coming back so for sure we'd be doing that um <laughs> if you ask me what the alternative of sec of calling it something other than second life uh-huh. that would be a challenge but you could do something kind of around that, like, you know, something that's evocative that doesn't necessarily cause that negative reaction. The, uh, you know, the Dwight Schrute, oh, yeah. well, it doesn't have winners or losers in the second oh, life. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 you don't have a first life, right? But, yeah, something around that. Um, <laughs> definitely the user interface. Yeah. That's a whole, that's a whole thing. I mean, um, it feels like, though, with the UI, obviously, we weren't UI designers. We were certainly more kind of mechanics yeah. uh, that were working on the physics and the networking and the compression and all that kind of stuff. But one observation I would make is that, and maybe you have a, some exceptions to this, but a lot of money has been spent trying to build virtual worlds since then. Yeah. And I don't know that for an open world experience, and I guess VR chat might be a good example to compare to, I don't know whether the UX has been made so much more elegant as, uh, frankly, sometimes I expected it to be done. You know, I expected that companies would come along and would really elegantly figure out solutions to something like, you know, uh, how to put your clothes on. And I feel like it, it's been harder than I would have thought. You know, I would have thought that somebody would have yeah. come in and just kind of swept us you know said well this is second life only way better ui and that would have really grown and taken off but you know obviously you know with the benefit of hindsight that actually hasn't happened so with all those but in narrower feature sets right like fortnite or something sure yeah or even minecraft well i mean well you start like you have a narrow feature set with uh, minecraft especially where i was just writing about this like if you look at the user interface of minecraft everything you see on the screen is about surviving Right. And as you learn it, then you start learning their subtleties and then you learn how to create and so on. But that's it's based around that survival. So 
you you know yeah. if, if we could go back and have the user interface be that simple at least to start and then as people get into the experience then start introducing all of these other tools i think that would be the the right approach i mean um yeah like slowly revealing the ui right. i've seen that idea and of course with second life having a open source client which i know you have feelings about as well and in fact you know the most popular client right is not made by linden right. Lab at which this is point, wild which is wild and hard and yeah. kind of good and exciting yeah. in some ways i think yeah definitely but yeah like the, so for the people that are listening that are second life users out there you could build a ui where you just showed one little thing at a time and then you kind of climb the skill ladder right? right and you got more things make that part up. of the game sure like the opening anybody game, wants like, to do that do learn it. learn how to explore the world and yeah. so as you do more interactivity you get more of the user interface that starts to yeah display. yeah do you think um though that grown-ups would be interested in like if we hadn't had avatars or if we'd made the avatars into minecraft avatars or if we made we made the avatars something that could never be made sexual could never be made photorealistic right um do, do you think we could have succeeded though if we'd done that differently i think so you know even back then at least to start well and then we get back to the game thing that um uh, at least gamers were f familiar enough with the avatar concept and that was not only just kids it was you know like you know gamers up until their 20s and 30s so at least to start with that again that's the kind of thing is it's you know i mentioned that in the book like what part of the market will totally willingly download a program a large program that is hot uh heavy 3d graphics and it's basically only gamers so you kind of have to start it as a game just as a market perspective and I've had so much experience, like giving demos, you know, when I was at Linden Lab, like uh, I remember, you know, bringing academics, uh, okay, well, now we got to download this program and then use your mouse. And first of all, okay, they don't have a graphics card. And they're like, well, I have a trackpad. And like, no, no, don't do you know, you're gonna, you, you, everyone's gonna, no, you, no, so don't do that. But so really, even just from the sheer necessity of the hardware requirements and the experience of installing software, you kind of want to start with gamers. So, you know, I'd, I'd interject also, it. it's funny, you know, Hunter, we were talking about Hunter Walk before. I remember that when laptops, believe it or not, right? Second Life kind of started before laptops became popular and uh, Wi-Fi. Yeah. And I remember that we had to get a laptop that had a GPU. And at the time there was this one Toshiba, I think laptop that yeah. was super expensive. And literally was like one of those old Osbournes from the 1980s or whatever. It was like the size of a suitcase, right? Because it was this enormous Toshiba that had a GPU that could run Second Life. And I remember Hunter used to have to take that thing to go like give demos. And I, you know, and it was just, just ridiculous. It was almost like security would ask you to look inside it, you know, because it had a, a GPU. But yeah, we missed, we were even before... Wi-Fi's and and laptops in a sense, right? And then like yeah. you were saying earlier, we were way before the mobile phone because right. that was 2007, and we were already yeah kind of at our largest size by then. When it came exactly. Out. So like the question of what to do depends on what the era. So like yeah, because now is like yeah, we'll totally start on mobile, 
and then kind of slowly branch out to VR and consoles and so on. Do you think a meaningful multiplayer experience where you're hanging out with strangers like you often are in Second Life can be done on a mobile device? Well, it's definitely happening. Like uh, Rec Room, even not even putting Roblox aside, because uh -huh. yeah, like you know, we're saying it's mostly kids, but like uh, Rec Room, it's yeah. probably about 20 million users, and the majority are on mobile or or uh, video game consoles. But there's a lot of activity on mobile. Do you know the age though? Rec Room is a young audience though. They're too, young. Right? They do skew a bit older than Roblox. So. I have a question that I don't know the answer to, but I have a skepticism, and part of this is I have four kids, so I have yeah. a, like a little bit of sample set on this. Um, I have a skepticism around whether as even hardcore gamers or young people today grow up, even, even when you grow up playing these games, mm. I wonder whether that su suggests, as many people suggest it does, that they're going to age. And when you're in your 20s, you're going to want to play video games the same way you did when you were 14. I wonder whether that's true because we do change a lot as we mature and we become interested in, you know, you know, human relationships with others in a new way. And yeah. I worry, I, I think that people say everybody that's grown up in Generation Z is going to just get older and want to do the same, you know, play online as young adults that they did yeah. as teenagers. I wonder whether that's true. And I don't know whether there are examples of that yet. Yeah. Well, I talk about that in the book as one of the main right. challenges. I call it the metaverse age cliff. If right. you look at the demographics, it's kids, Yeah, you have a teens. graph that's great. Yeah. yeah. Then about 24, they just go, yeah, there's a, This is your book. Oh, hey. We yes, should, here's you. the book. We should, <laughs> we should find that graph. But yeah, you have a great graph, which yeah. is how abruptly, yeah, it things just, drop off. And what, at what age? Like 14, about right? 20, like, uh, or, well, 24, it's, it's it just drops oh, really sharply. Okay. And basically, yeah. you, can, you can almost see in the graph people getting out of college, going, you know, sorry, I would like to have sex now with people <laughs> and go on dates and parties. And it's just, no, it's zero. so now. Right, so how are we going to get past yeah, that? So, How's the world going to get past that yeah. and have virtual worlds be something that people our age could want to use? Yeah, and I think, well, one way uh, definitely is to kind of change the mind space. And I mentioned, for example, a state of play, that conference, yeah. which Linda Lab yeah. kind of helped drive uh, with uh, Beth Novick yeah, came Beth up with it, but yeah. really created a uh, academic um, conversation around yeah. virtual worlds. And we don't have that now. And that yeah. that really helped bring in a lot of the thought leaders and artists and people thinking about, you know, thinking about the uh, broader implications of virtual worlds. So that would be a good way of, of interesting adults beyond like the hardcore geeks who are already interested. I remember, by the way, in State of Play, I, yeah. I think we came to the second one. I think there had been one in 2003. Right. I think you write about this in your book as well. And then we came to the second one in 2004 and we made this big statement that, hey, intellectual property, we don't see intellectual property as belonging to us in any way. It belongs to you, you yeah. the participants. And uh, yeah, that was a big deal. We got a lot of, a, yeah. a lot of I just, think that was one of the things that kind of helped tip Second Life. I have to say, I met, I also met Anshe Chung. All right. She came in at that conversation. She came up to me and she had such a remarkable, intense personality that she came up to me. And I, like we were talking about earlier, I felt a bit embarrassed because I was, she was quite a famous person in Second yeah. Life. And so I was a bit taken aback and I probably flushed a little bit. And she said, I made you blush. <laughs> <laughs> she just got up in my face right no away way. and said, I made Philip Linden blush. That's um, hilarious. I thought that was wonderful. There's so many remarkable people whose stories oh, yeah. are told in Second Life. That was because we did the first, we did it in New York State of Play, and then all of a sudden, kind of people just the community started just yeah. 
in you know engulfing us, which was really amazing. Yeah. But um, so that's one way. Uh, I think the other way too is um, like plan the fact that there is going to be this cliff, but plan for people mm -hmm. after they've had their you know experiences in their twenties and they've gone into the world. What also happens is they get married, they start having kids, yeah, and then they do start having time to get back. Also, they want to play with their kids, yeah. So they want a kind of crossover like Roblox like experience because they want to, you know, you can do a lot like a logo Lego like experience, a Roblox like experience with parents and their kids. So that's one way right. around that. But also just plan for people having more time to come back in again and yep. explore because you know they're living in the suburbs or whatever, and they have more time and they're married, so. I think there's another important distinction there, which is that kids, playing together with your friends feels to me like a very different pattern of use than like what Second Life is more, you know, typically, right? Which is people typically meeting people that they didn't know before right. and connecting with them. Um, I feel like, you know, Discord groups and Fortnite teams, and you know, there, there's a lot of ways in which the gaming industry, uh, uh, builds things for small groups of people that already know each other. But yeah. I feel like there's this like when we talk about the word metaverse, I think all of us think about a big open place in some regard, at least. Yeah. And that a place that includes strangers. Right. Like, yeah. and in fact, of course, we could talk all about that. Right. It's like, what do, what do you think the challenges are to creating a place with strangers in it? Yeah. You know, that would like what has Second Life done right? And then what do we still need to do? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that's I say one of the core definitions or a features requirement for a metaverse is it has millions of people. And yeah. it's not only because that makes it scalable for a company, but also that just enhances the serendipity. You could meet kind of anyone from anywhere. Yeah. And that makes it unique because with our, our existing social media, you only meet people that you're already connected to. So right, right. That's changed a bit. Uh, we were talking about Discord. I, I've noticed that is people do meet mostly their friends in Fortnite or whatever, their real mm -hmm. life friends, and then, you know, they hang out with each other. But what happens is Discord has created that kind of third space yeah. for p gamers. And then they actually start meeting people from around the world because they they start, they're all Fortnite fans. And then they start going into these servers and they meet people. Like I interviewed a, a team that, you know, one's in Australia, one's in the US. And they, but they met in Fortnite Primarily, but then they moved to Discord and they started to create a connection that way. So yeah. there's ways around that. Though I do agree the ideal is to have this totally open space. Probably want to go in with your real life friends, at least some, but you want to open it up where you're going to feel like you can meet anybody from anywhere in the world. Yeah. Do you think that, do you think that Second Life and, and virtual worlds more generally can make us better people in our interactions with each other? Definitely. Why? Well, it's certainly compared to other internet mediums, you do have that sense of immersion enough that you feel like you are talking to an actual person. So really, it's going to be the level of how you are in real life. And I think, well, this is sort of my assumption is I think most people are more or less good most of the time, at least on a person to person level. Whereas with social media, you, it's algorithmized to enhance outrage or to uh, amplify outrage. So actually, we, we tend to be more like dicks on social yeah. media. Like I kind of like that. Yep. And and so you do want this open space where you do feel like you are connecting with someone in real life. I mean, there are dickheads in real life, 
and they're going to be definitely assholes in the virtual world space but at least you have the opportunity for people who are trending toward good to still feel like they want to be good because they are connecting with people you know one of the benefits of virtual worlds is that they don't have nuclear weapons in the sense that you know like you're i, yeah. I couldn't agree with you more obviously i think we you know we both share that kind of optimism about human behavior that that when human beings are put in typical environments they are 99 percent of the time they're helping each other you know like I, I always give the example that our eyes are white our eye you know the, the outside part of our eyes evolved to be light colored very recently because if you look at the great apes for example or the chimpanzees their eyes are all black huh. And the reason for that is to let us signal each other with our eyes very subtly. You know, you really? can tell exactly that I'm looking at your can of, you know, your drink right, right, right now. Right. And that evolved, that, that we evolved that way because if you think about it, mostly we use that information to help each other, not to hurt each other. I always think of that as a beautiful yeah. example of how we are collaborative social animals, right? And almost right. all the time we're trying to help each other out. And I know I agree with you because I want to restate it that, the horror of social media compared to say Second Life is that social media actually like found a way and in fact a business model where it benefited uh, to drive people to be bad to each other because exactly. as you say of outrage and you know the luridness of it and the you know the the amygdala and the fight or flight response and yeah. it's just horrifying I yeah. think horrifying yeah. that we've yeah. like had these like last ten years of that and of course those of us like like you and I who were in Second Life know right away like wait 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 it doesn't have to be that way i mean people right. don't just look for opportunities to torture each other online right um, they generally are supportive and helpful i mean i don't know if you agree but i think the other thing about second life is that there are real consequences in second life right it's not that there's a nanny that's watching you we know for them almost always in second life there's not right right it's that there are consequences for your actions yeah i mean if you're you a, a dick yeah. you're going to get kicked out of a community and right. you're not going to be able to come back there, even though you may still have a second life account. So, yeah, you know, these things are material. I mean, there's a lot of drama, especially with the fashion community. <laughs> but yeah, generally, yeah, you have reputation. Yeah. You would generally want to be wholesome. And so, yeah, that's why I'm so passionate about growing this space that Second Life showed what's possible. And now we have 500 million people plus that are in virtual world metaverse platforms that have enough functionality that we could potentially scale it to be something like second life but bigger and you know really the world needs it because yeah, yeah we're all at each other's throat and it's primarily because of social media or in great part and so we need a real-time immersive space where we have a chance to actually engage with people and you write about this in your book, right? I mean, um, in fact, I think the the very title, Making a Metaverse That Matters, right? Yeah. I think that's the, the that matters, matters part. part. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Is doing good. Yeah. 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 And just having a, a new space for imagination and creativity and, you know, uh, people benefiting from that. But yeah, really about community. It's so nice that we've got a chance to see that you know that it, that it gives it gives one hope right that, yeah that, that it's people are basically good and all you have to do is enable that rather than intentionally building a business model that that, it's, that works against that. to see what's possible because i think a lot of people don't even know it's possible yeah i mean that's why i got so frustrated when uh zuckerberg got into the kind of he declared he's making the metaverse and apparently he ignored all the lessons that Corey and Drake imparted to him when he was at <laughs> right. meta and then People kind of associated yeah. not only with meta, but with social media and really, uh, yeah. hopefully my book helps, which is kind of conveying, no, this is a whole other experience 
that is possible. It's already at a large scale. It's mostly kids, but we can grow mm -hmm. it to have everyone or a lot of people, anyone who likes 3D experiences. So that's like yeah. one in four people. But yeah, it's there. And, you know, hopefully Second Life is like one of those, not a city on a hill, but a, a beautiful town on the hill that we could actually model after. So I take it you're not moving all your Twitter activity to threads either. <laughs> uh, no, I tried threads, but yeah, it really, it just, the whole purpose is to kill Twitter is that's what threads purpose is. So it's like, uh, I'm, I'm not going to help you there, Mark. You mentioned the love machine in your book. Um, oh yeah. It's kind of funny because in a lot of ways I thought of the love machine, which was a, a Corey and myself uh, creation um, TM or whatever. Uh, the love machine was kind of like Twitter in a way before Twitter, you know, because if you remember, we started that, I think the love machine was 2005. Yeah. And, uh, and it's so interesting that we got to play around with this idea of writing a single sentence about something and then having everybody see it. <laughs> <laughs> kind of before it became a thing yeah what do you do you think twitter do you think twitter's the right like is it a useful way for people to communicate i mean especially as a journalist you know oh well uh, for a journalist it's invaluable it's just why you know, because um you do you are able <laughs> it, it's almost like the dark side of the second life you're able to meet anyone that's on twitter and connect with them mm -hmm. you know from celebrities to just you know, random people that you happen to meet, like, you know, like a lot of the Second Life communities there, a lot of the yeah. VR chat, yeah. VR chat, uh, Roblox, et cetera. So, so that makes it really exciting. Um, but um, yeah, it's, uh, it's in the hands of a very interesting person right now. So um, yeah, a lot of it's, it's great potential is just kind of getting uh, sideswiped. But uh, I just look at it and I see that inability to control, like I can't just follow the people I want to follow, which of course has been this trend with TikTok and everything where you don't have control over the the, the feed. Yeah. But I don't know, maybe it's because I'm old, but I just feel like <laughs> not being able to control and filter what information is presented to me as a consumer. Yeah. I, I just feel like, come on. I mean, that's just yeah. completely crazy. Like, how could you do that? Elon, he's trying to push as much of his yeah. stuff on you as much as possible. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, but Elon, no, but Twitter, I, and I'm sure it's probably going to die at some point here, but Twitter yeah. still has the, um, the people you follow where you can, you can say, no, no, no. I only want to see the yeah, people you I follow manually do that. Yeah. The for you versus the following yeah. or whatever. And of course, yeah, they'll probably like quietly delete that in a minute. But, but right now, at least you can do that on Twitter. And to my, to my exploration of it so far, you can't do that on threads. It's like TikTok. Right. You get, you, yeah. you can follow, but you get you get a mix of stuff that is right. determined by the machine. I don't, don't want have, the machines to determine. Things right, and you don't have like that sense of real time engagement. Yeah. I mean, um, metaverse platforms are great for that because it's a real time. But to have a real time, but also yeah. it just it's a it's a cascade, so you can actually follow. For like you know, like if there's a presidential election or something like that, you can follow it in real time. Yeah. And Twitter is still really powerful for that. What. Uh... Yeah, it is really interesting to look at all these different ways of communicating online yeah. and compare them to things like Second Life, you know. Um, let's talk about some of the newer metaverse-like experiences, say, after Second Life, and you've written yeah. a lot about them and what they did better. And specifically, I want to start with VRChat. You know, what's your take on VRChat? I'd make the case that VRChat is kind of the closest successor of the next generation of VR. or uh, Of Second or, Life. You know, well, yeah, it's a, definitely a kind of success closest successor and actually yeah. there's um several people who've come in from either uh, at Lindy lab or from second life like we're developers now there yeah. uh, but really that sense of having as open a platform as possible 
Right, right. So, so you're saying that 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 in VR chat you can't do live prim editing, but you can do right live. I uh, wish they had that, but you yeah, um, uh, experience editing. Yeah, yeah. So that and just um, the amount the amount of creativity from the community already is just really huge. Yeah, um, and that's when we we talk about we're talking about the game structure. It has a very light game structure. Basic is a karmic system. So mm, the more yeah, you're right about that. Yeah, the longer the you're in VR chat the more access and abilities you have. So basically the game, so to speak, is to prove that you're not a dick. Yeah. And and so uh, I think that's really helped with the community being very positive. Yeah, I've been working a lot um, outside the world of virtual worlds now at my new lab on kind of some of the stuff we've been working on is exploring things like web of trust, webs of trust, you know, like oh, yeah. can we use signaling of the sort that you could use in an app to say allow me to trust you before i meet you or something like that you know and it's like in some sense the opposite of social media which creates distrust even amongst friends yeah. right i want to use technology to create trust because i think that's one of the things we've lost and it's one of the things that web3 and blockchain we haven't gone to that yet but huh. one of the things that those things actually make worse unfortunately yeah. um but i think i think kind of Re-examining trust and how we we build trust with with technology systems and to that point karma right trust yeah. is a game that everybody can play yeah. going back to what we said earlier right yeah. and I think yeah that's a good point about VR chat the other thing with VR chat well what else do you think with VR chat is like completely uh, phenomenally new as a as a virtual world experience um, I would say it's new but it's really it's really built on what we've seen with like with Second Life, like really encouraging a vast diversity of avatars. Yeah. And the way they manage it, uh, Jesse and Graham, they they really take the community's lead, and the community's kind of evolved uh, first, and then the community follows after them. Like all the uh, uh, furries and anime fans apparently yeah. jumped on the VR chat. Yeah. And so they followed that, like because they um, well we saw that with Second Life with the furries, like they started customizing the avatars which were human to start but then now they added yeah uh, furry ad avatars and then vr chat has kind of yeah. enabled more tools that allow that so um and i think yeah. you're right one of the points you make in the book is that we we were focused in second life on creating a, a, a very human avatar yeah with a mesh of course part of that was that we literally couldn't transmit those meshes in the beginning we we had to transmit the slider settings you know and then yeah. morph the body according to that so we had to Kind of in some sense we had to start with a human body but yeah. i think you make a really good point that is how would second life have been different if it had been like triangle based avatars from the very beginning where you could upload any model which of course was vr chat right, right so that's right. an example i, I think the big. other thing for me about vr chat that i don't know if it strikes you as as important the first time i saw people standing in front of a mirror in oh, vr the mirror chat effect, yeah waving you know, and like looking, you know, and moving obviously realistically because they were wearing a headset. Uh, I was just like, wow. And I thought about people in Second Life and I thought the people in Second Life that have created these Second Lives where their avatar is more, they identify more with their avatar than they do with their physical body. Mm -hmm. I just immediately thought, what would it be like if they could wave at themselves in the mirror like that? Yeah. And I, I think that idea of like mirror gazing and the way that like 
you know, you can stand shoulder to shoulder, somebody that you haven't met and kind of look at them in the mirror. And it's kind of like that indirection where you don't feel like it's like what we're doing. You know, it's not as intimidating. Right. Uh, so you can sit there and kind of look in the mirror at yourself, but sort of be looking at them too. Yeah. I think there's something like that's really powerful, super powerful about that. Uh, hopefully uh, PBR is going to enable that in Second Life, right? Yeah, there is. There's that's, mirrors coming. That's yeah. something to think yeah. about. Um, yeah. That's good to know. But yeah, I think you're but right. I think you need to be able to wave in the mirror too. Something I've talked about a lot is I think with AI and with modern computers, we're going to be able to capture all the body movement that you see in somebody that's wearing a sophisticated headset or even body trackers yeah. and do that on your avatar, but without requiring that you wear anything, right? Like, like if my MacBook can see me well enough to know where my hands are and everything, we ought to be able to like animate the avatar in a really realistic way. Because I, you know, yeah. I think there's this asymmetry, like you really want to kind of, you want to see yourself wave in the mirror and you want other people to see you. I think other people seeing you move is actually more important than you seeing you move. Mm -hmm. And what that means is you don't need the VR headset. It's another reason why, why bother yeah. with the headset? The headset exactly. is to let you be in the first person view perfectly, right. which of course is awesome because you can look at your own hands or whatever. But uh, I don't think it matters as much as sharing nonverbal communication like I'm doing right now totally. with you. Well, and the puppetry project from yeah. Linden Lab is going to Working on that, that. too. Yep. Yeah. How's yep. it going? It's going. I mean, you know, like everything with Lyndon, I, I think that I think, well, this is an interesting point about Second Life. I think that Second Life has to be and succeeded by being quite respectful of the things people were already doing there. And so I think like you were touching on early, a lot of people in Second Life like to predominantly use text. And so they don't want to be more embodied. You know, they're comfortable with the level of embodiment that they're enjoying. And so I think like it's tricky because yeah. while virtual worlds in the future, I think certainly should have you know, AI tracking their bodies and moving them. I don't know whether that suits Second Life as well as it would, you know, for something entirely new. I think there's another general observation, which I bet you would agree with, which is, especially once we started allowing people to monetize what they were doing in Second Life, we kind of couldn't change it anymore. Like, remember yeah, that? Yeah. I think you, I don't know if you talk about it or, um, I think you might, you may. Yeah, I did. Yeah, like, there's that thing where, like you could see inside people's bodies. Oh, you told, yeah, we talked about that for the book. Yeah, yeah. like if you, you could flip the triangles around and then we had a bug, not really a bug, but we had a design choice where you could see through a triangle if it was backwards and people realized that they could just do that and like make like a Halloween avatar where you could see the bones inside yeah. the skeleton, right? And like, what were we supposed to do? That was a, basically a bug. So right. if we took that bug out, right, we break somebody's exactly, hundred thousand yeah. dollar a year avatar that's, business and so that's we what just I mean. didn't feel we could do that it's, it's a collaboration metaverse yeah it's a collaboration between doing users and developers because once something becomes popular you can't break it yeah i mean the whole second life fashion industry is basically hacks like you know like the head yeah, like right, the right. hair it's like an attachment and with the high heels or shoes yeah you people could, like, had to create invisible avatar, like crunch crunch up the toes yeah or and you, now you have people literally feeding their children based on this hack. So you can't get rid of the hack. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel like that's a really, you know, the choose your own work thing, which was part of our culture, yeah. and, you know, many people have commented on it. And I think you were talking to Corey about oh, yeah. this. Um, I agree that choose your own work was definitely uh, uh, impaired our ability to do many things. On the other hand, choose your own work may have enabled some of the the fact that the team, you know, the employees of, of, of Linden Lab did tend to kind of protect the assets and the behaviors of the world. Mm -hmm. So so it's kind of I think it's a little bit like, you know, six and one and a half dozen of the other. Right. Like choose your own work did keep us from I think I, I would say I was the one who wrote that. You know, I, yeah, I, I would go back. I would look right. back. Yeah. And say I think I was at least 
a bit a quite a bit more wrong there than I would have thought at the time. Yeah. You know, like I thought that empowering everybody to be an autonomous CEO of their own work, right. so to speak, was the right call. And I think that in some ways it was like it caused people to like vigorously protect so that we didn't break things that people were making money with or whatever. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it totally one is it stressed people out in ways that they didn't necessarily sign up for. You know, right. it's like not everybody signs up at a company to be the CEO. Right. Right. And in a sense, I was saying to everybody, you're your own CEO. Yeah. And I'll fire you if you don't make good decisions kind of thing. And it's like, <laughs> whoa, that is a lot. To so ask you're free, but you're also not free. You're free, like, but you better a, choose yeah. well, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think that that was stressful, but I think it did help to protect the world from changing very quickly. And it still does, That's right? Like the difficulty of like making Second Life change is almost impossible. But I kind of feel like, I don't know, you know, if we were able to change it quickly, then we might be able to break people's businesses in ways that would be super yeah. bad for the yeah. world. That's the challenge because like we're saying, you add, well, like we mentioned, like with a firestorm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, cause, because Second Life has mm -hmm. an open source viewer, now the official viewer is not the most popular one. Right. And now, inadvertently, people weren't necessarily, Linden Lab, I'm sure, wasn't planning this. Like, you have a team of basically volunteers keeping Second Life operational in the sense that most people <laughs> use Firestorm. Rather. And it takes like a few months for a new feature. Like we did a bunch of updates yeah. to increase the frame rate, which at least for my computer, like increased it dramatically. I was complaining about it. <laughs> we had to wait like three or four months for those really good changes to get all the way into Firestorm. Pretty yeah. bizarre, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, that's um, that was another decision. Why, I, you know, I get into the book, like you know, how much the Dow and Linden, the kind of utopian idea that was translated from Second Life to... Linden Lab, the actual company, like, okay, the idea, let's make a Burning Man experience. Anyone could do anything. And then let's try to make it as open as possible in the company. Right. And you ha you run up into those similar paradoxes. Like, okay, yes, everyone can do anything, but also that's yeah. going to lead to uh, unplanned consequences. So, yeah, it's a big challenge. Yeah. You know, as I get older. Yeah. That's what we can come back to that as a wrap up question. What have you learned from getting older? I always say, what have <laughs> we learned? And I, I think like, I think one of the things I've learned from getting older is that there are questions that don't have good answers, you know, like, yeah, as no a younger answer. person. I thought I knew I thought I thought that there was an answer to everything, a correct one, and that I would find it. And now I wow. think both of those aren't necessarily true. You know, there aren't there are questions for which there are no good answers. We have to tolerate that as you know, citizens of Earth or Second Life or whatever. Um, there's not much we can do about that. We we touched on uh, Web three. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Web three and virtual worlds. Like, is is yeah. there any utility for Web three and virtual worlds? You wrote about not in so your far. Book, yeah. You wrote not just about Second Life, but you wrote about things like Lamina, right? Which is Lamina which one. is doing a layer one network. Yeah. You know, which is a project that I'm also helping out a bit with. Right. Um, uh, yeah. What do you think about that? You know. Yeah, I, I mean, I devote a whole chapter to Lamina One, uh, primarily because it's, it's founded by like Neil Stevenson, literal Neil Stevenson, yeah. which I find really fascinating. Like I, in the middle of the book, I'm writing about the metaverse, and all of a sudden, the literal Neil Stevenson is gets involved and launches his own metaverse. Company. <laughs> and you got so, a chance to talk to him. Yeah, about so it. yeah, yeah. going to do an interview with him, of course. But even before that, there was these blockchain uh, crypto verses, mm -hmm. like the Central Land and the Sandbox, which. I really think it was kind of 
coming from the Web3 folks, like they have a lot of Ethereum that they're trying to move. And they're like, well, that's one of the use cases is like this virtual world, virtual like Central Land, and you know, we can move it that way. And so they kind of glommed on to the metaverse concept. Uh, Decentraland came before the hype of Web3, I should say. So, you know, a little they, bit. Yeah. yeah, they, they, you know, they, I think they had good intentions, but really what it has happened is that because it, the kind of the profit motive is baked into the Web3 model, that people are really not incentivized to just be in a virtual world experience and create content for its own sake or to be there to meet other people and engage with other people. They're there in great part or mostly because they want to have their property become valuable and then they can make a big killing. So that's really, I think, led to none of these platforms have any kind of active user growth beyond like a right. few thousand people. So right. that's been a problem. The, I, which is real quick, the real interesting paradox is uh, uh, Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash totally inspired the metaverse platform industry and also Cryptonomicon, his other novel, right. big novel, uh, inspired the cryptocurrency. Bitcoin, yeah. yeah, and it's like, I almost feel like with Lamina One, he's trying to see if both things can work at the same time and yeah. maybe not. I think the other thing that Web3 and its attempted use with the metaverse shows us is that going all the way over to, and it's almost like you have the like Facebook idea where everything is centralized. No one has any agency. There are nannies who are watching you all the time. Right that will you know take appropriate you know measures if you're bad so that's the fully centralized model obviously that one has all kinds of risks we see it in geopolitics we see it i mean it, it you don't want to completely centralize things right. you'll you'll fall to homogeneity and authoritarianism on but the thing i think that silicon valley has been less quick to grok if you will is that if you flip all the way to the other side and you have yeah. Each individual is in complete control of their own life. It's like an Ayn Rand novel, right? Like yeah. that extreme level of libertarian, you know, to each their own mindset, right. as we know, doesn't work either. And the example I always think of is extortion around property, right? As, oh, soon, totally. as, as soon as I saw Web3 people saying, you can buy property and once you own the property, no one <laughs> is in control of that yeah. but you, right? I mean, just like. I'm like, oh my God, I've seen this movie before and you're yeah. about to watch it again and I don't think you're yeah. going to like it. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, uh, most people, a lot of people in the Valley are very critical of, of humanity's background, but really just <laughs> read some literature and read about the, the human experience before making these platforms because you're going to run up against it unless you really have thought about all of these issues because, yeah, they're inevitable. I think one of the benefits that we had was that we were a bunch of curious generalists, right? Yeah. We were yeah, all reading philosophy people. and geeking out and comparing it to the matrix and, you know, doing all these different things. And I, I think that a lot of the philosophical um, approach that many of us at the company made to world building was really healthy because we did oh, get yeah. exposed to things like Jane Jacobs, death and life of America, great American cities. Right, there was right. this book where I said, I read that one and was really inspired by it. And I was like, Hey, it's important that you be able to walk everywhere. And in fact, that you be forced to walk yeah. to your friend's house by that store that you don't like, because that's just the way life works. Like maybe something interesting happens at that juncture between the two spaces, you know? And yeah. I think there were so many things that we did do right because we were right. We were more more philosophical about it and not yeah. and curious and not yeah. just hey whatever whatever code I write is just going to work right, which is obviously got yeah. the world. I mean that would so be a good trouble. takeaway. I mean you're making a virtual world that is a world. So really, anything from 
kind of human experience is going to be relevant to what you're doing. So you, yeah. you do want to read about urban planning, for example. So <laughs> exactly. Important. Yeah. Yeah. But Web3, yeah, I'm sure we could both talk forever about. <laughs> I mean, the other thing like that I'm so passionate about is the economy and inequality, you know, that. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm working on some new technology to look at whether we could address wealth inequality with, with something. Yeah, I that's think really that, interesting. Yeah, I, I think that like Second Life has a fairer form of currency, right? Because it has a basic income yeah. and the currency stays uh, level in price. So the early people don't get rich. You know, the, the people that got into Second Life right. in 2003 aren't just billionaires for free, right? Which is right. what we have with crypto, right? right. You know, if you, if you started your mining rig and in 2009, right. for example, you are a multimillionaire, if not yeah. a lot more today. Pyramid scheme. And I think it's incredibly important that, you know, we all recognize that there are different ways to do virtual currencies and you don't have to hurt people and you don't have to cause this runaway wealth inequality, which is what we see with, uh, you know, with, with all the cryptocurrencies and the altcoins. Yeah. No, totally. So, yeah, yeah I, I'm fascinated by that. Like I mentioned that in the book, like that's kind of... Uh, the second life vision it seems like you're taking that to see if actually you can take part of that second life vision to actually save the whole real world <laughs> did you ever buy cryptocurrency i no i yeah i, I never got the do point. you remember the vending machines in second life where you could buy oh it? I, I yeah i remember that yeah like you've written about that palmer right? lucky talked about incredible that he had to go buy yeah sell his bitcoin he had to go in second life i run into people all the time that tell me you know in my travels that say like I got my Bitcoin in Second Life. And I, when it I first heard launch, that from somebody, I couldn't remember. I mentioned I this like, part. It, it, Second Life helped Bitcoin launch. Yeah. Like literally, because that was the only, the only way to get it other the, than if you didn't have a mining rig, right? That was, and also the only way to cash out into, into you know, fiat, uh, uh, US right. dollars. So Oh, right. Because you could flip it back. Right. Yeah. So actually, Second Life launched Bitcoin, not the other way around. <laughs> like the Second Life was first, not You heard crypto. it here first. That's yes, pretty good. That's Second for sure. Life launched crypto. Yes. Um, That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay. What about the Vision Pro, the gadget. Oh yeah, we I should talk it. about the Vision Pro. What did you think of it? It's impressive. Uh, it's really interesting. Ashley has a Second Life connection. Avi Barzeev talked a lot about it in the book. He was one of the early developers of uh, Second Life. Yeah. He knew Neil Stevenson back in the day, so he's been doing this forever. He's one of the senior developers of uh, Vision Pro, so took a lot of the experience with it, which I think informs part of the reason why they are making it a AR-focused experience, mm -hmm. because uh, VR has all the challenges we've discussed, like yeah. causes nausea and so on. But um, yeah. it makes it more immediately valuable for most people to see that you can have all of your um, existing kind of iPhone experience layered onto the real world. So I think that's a, a very good approach. They still have a VR component and they're actually still working on metaverse technology, but more on the background. Like, yeah. um, the uh, Apple partnered with Rec Room, yep. one of the bigger platforms we were talking about. And so you That's can right. you can switch over to VR and do the Rec Room thing, but uh, I call it a mullet strategy. You got that's the party in the back. On the front side, the, the stuff that Tim Cook talks about, he talks about, yeah, the AR, it's like a <laughs> Mac Pro. You can have all these screens and you can do, be very produ productive. So yeah. yeah, I think it'll work like that. I think, um, I suspect it'll probably be a, a niche like, the Mac Pro. I looked at the Mac Pro's market yeah, of right. Apple. It's, I think right. it's about five percent of their revenue. Like, because it's it, like the latest was like six thousand dollars. Yeah. But if you spend thirty five hundred for Apple Vision Pro, that can do all the stuff the Mac Pro can do. Then that becomes the next Mac Pro, which probably yeah. informs why they call yeah. it a Vision Pro. 
So they're going after that hardcore right. developer. Something to back down from. You know, you look up, you know, if Linden Lab had, was crowded with engineers, you'd see it, like they have like four or five screens already. <laughs> and so I think for a- This is that. Vision Pro, yeah. So, but yeah, going consumer, I'm very skeptical. Yeah, my take, uh, my take is that Apple is always focused on perfecting an experience that is a transformative new experience that they perfect, right? Right. So I think with the iPhone, what they perfected was a handheld device that could easily access the internet and of course apps, but you know, yeah. to start, it was just, it could browse just websites browser, like right. normally. And that was revolutionary, you know, to be able to do that. And I yeah. think the thing with the Vision Pro is um, there's all the stuff that we're all talking about around weight and battery life and all that stuff. And I think that's true and fair. And those are technical things that have to be dealt with. But the question in my mind is, what is the Vision Pro perfecting that is a utterly new, you know, qualitatively new way that we like use computers? And I don't yeah. quite see it yet. And I think you're right, what you said, the mullet. Um, what I think what the Vision Pro wants to be is a way of communicating that is transformative, you know, yeah. while using your computer, you know, so I can read my email while talking to you, but you're a thousand miles away. Right. And I think that I, I was dismayed watching the announcement because they kind of looked like they kind of pulled back all the live communication demos. So I was like, oh, when I saw that, you know, because they sort of, you, you, you saw a couple of scenes there where they were ostensibly, you know, talking to somebody that looked like they were sort of in a Zoom window floating yeah. there. Right. But that, you know, as you and I know, that's not addressing the problems with Zoom. You know, that's just kind of repackaging Zoom and putting it on yeah. your head as a monitor. But right. that's not addressing the fact that I can't tell who's looking at who. In right. Zoom. So I think that the Vision Pro has got to be, it's got to enable like really fluid, easy communication while you're using it. And until yeah. it does that, even if it's focused on AR, it's still causing this alienation problem, you know, where like we're kind of moving away from each other. Yeah. It's like that people were commenting on the guy kind of almost creepily, like taking the videos of his kids, right? And his kids are looking at him and he's wearing the thing. And it's like, <laughs> are you really there with your kids or are right. you just recording it Even for later? They like, put the eyes on it, but yeah. it's still, yeah, it's just- The googly eyes. It, yeah. We used to glue those googly eyes onto the front of the <laughs> oculuses, the rifts, just because we thought it was funny. Right. You know? Yeah, so that mean, <laughs> I mean, they, they made it, kind of almost by design, at least they're presented as something you use in the home or in the office to probably get around the whole glass hole, you know, the <laughs> Google glass and, you know, why are you creeping on me kind of thing. But yeah. Uh, yeah, that's still much to be determined whether people would want to wear a headset while they're with their family yeah. or the things that I just, yeah, I, I just don't see that. I'm skeptical. I, I mean, mean, to work know, maybe, I mean, but you know, we, you know. we spent 10 years at High Fidelity on you know, building a whole new platform that was designed to be, you know, native with headsets. Yeah. And we gave up because we felt that these problems were so serious that we weren't going to get through them. Um, not in the time frame that, you know, a startup could have. I kind of wonder about that. Like, didn't people get that? Like, like Philip Rosedale, who pioneered so much of this, they really, you really tried and you got really, I mean, the technology is really impressive, got major leaps of that uh, with VR, but still couldn't get all the way there and yeah. you know and then zuckerberg goes, well i can do it and they, you can dude, imagine you've got no you, VR experience. What are you, you about? can imagine what a complicated range of emotions it's one of those like you know you know like strange emotional words that only one culture has you know like schadenfreude <laughs> or whatever yeah. it's like the bizarre experience of seeing 
Facebook renamed themselves in the middle of yeah 2020. I, I mean, I just was like, was wild. I was kind of like, oh my gosh, you're kidding me. Because you're right. We had just called it, you know? And I mean, we had, we had thousands, was, of, we had it? thousands like, of people in headsets. We had had events with hundreds of people that were really yeah. pretty, pretty cool. Very cool. Um, and we had done all the kind of work that you're seeing now, but yeah, we just concluded that um, it was going to exclude so many people. Everybody feels not safe because they're blind while they're wearing it. Right. And that's just a fundamental human safety issue. Totally. And I didn't see how to get around that. Like you said earlier, especially with VR where, you know, you need to completely block out the person's view because otherwise right. they don't feel immersed and they feel sick and everything. Yeah. I, it's a really hard problem. And I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, other than it's tech and, you know, you try everything three or four times and sometimes the fourth time works. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So interesting. If Apple can get it right, then, or if they can't get it right, no one can get it right. But, uh, so you're, you're like your Facebook stock. Let's see. Would you buy more Apple stock? What is this like Jim Cramer? <laughs> yeah. Do you buy more Apple? Do you buy more Facebook or do you sell or, you know, what's your stock? Yeah. You probably want to stick with Apple. It's, uh... <laughs> it's Nvidia that's doing well today. With oh all yeah. The... Yeah. And that takes us into AI, right? Oh yeah. So, uh, yeah, the real, just like, uh, what do they, what do they say? Mercantilism, uh, picks and shovels, right? Well, the, the best, yeah. the, the people that do Instead best are the ones selling the, goal, you sell the yeah, you sell the picks and shovels. It's like Nvidia. Oh my God. You yeah. Know, selling the no, GPU totally. that's yeah. used for AI. So exactly. What do you make about AI? Have you written about it? Have you? Oh yeah. No, written you know. a lot about it. Mm -hmm. Um, especially just the shift was so rapid. And of course, uh, the Second Life users almost immediately adopted ChatGPT before most people. Like yeah. now, you wrote about very quickly. Started seeing Bunny people, GPT. Yeah, yeah, Bunny GPT, and there's some other ones. There's one uh, for sex, of course, but uh, kind of not sure how you got around the uh, the, the the GPT uh, limits on sexual content. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, someone you can literally have sex with the uh, uh, ChatGPT powered bot if you're. You should not be able to do that. You're right. The under open AI though. No. Yeah, he says something. Well, it triggers the erotic thing, and then. I have a system that takes over from there, but uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, so, um, that's actually how I first experienced ChatGPT was talking to BunnyGPT, and really, uh, to me, immediately seeing its limitations. Like, okay, this is a slightly better chatbot, yeah, at least, yeah, you know, on a f first, you know, primary experience. And I know you can ask a lot of sophisticated questions, yeah, and so it, you know, it's definitely got some use cases yeah like uh you know i know i know a doctor who uses it to not diagnose people but actually uses it as a way to communicate empathically to patients because he's like i'm really busy i can't explain you know all the technical things that are going wrong with you but i asked chat gbt how to do this empathically like i'm talking to a five-year-old and then he can do it so there's all these really interesting huh. niche use cases i i think all of the big promise things like it's going to totally transform how media is done yeah. and you know like we were just talking about film and you know, like it's we're gonna totally transform trans transform film i think i'm i'm pretty skeptical there yeah It'd be like an interesting said. tool on some level but yeah like uh you know be realistic it's uh, you know, we're kind of in a hype phase here well if you look at second life as an environment where people interact deeply and intimately with each other right like like in this big open space, essentially, oftentimes with people that they didn't know before. Is, all, is that whole experience, like what we think of as Second Life today, going to get replaced with like you interacting with NPCs that are run by chatbots that are 
yeah delightful replacements for human beings like what do you think about that i mean i mean and there's actual hard numbers i blogged about this uh if you look at google trends roblox and um minecraft are still much more popular than chat gpt chat gpt has never been more popular than the leading metaverse platforms is that so and i I think that's part of what you're talking about is is you you get you go there for information it's kind of an enhanced google really for most people but you still want to engage with other human beings and so you stick with the social spaces and metaverse platforms are huge social spaces so yeah npcs are not gonna you know you it's fun for a while but you want to be with your friends who are actual existing human people you know there's a study that i wouldn't want to read too much into without reading it more and um you know uh i I think it's probably hard to jump to conclusions from it but i know the study was that uh people were uh being given therapy for depression now it, it turns out i didn't know this that with depression in particular i guess there's a scoring mechanism where it's pretty easy to ask somebody a series of questions and then from the questions assess how depressed they are. I didn't know that. I thought that was fascinating. Apparently it's quite accurate and quite effective. And so for that reason, because you can objectively measure depression, there's been a lot of studies done on, you know, what does or doesn't improve uh, depression, uh, you know. And the study that I saw was one where it, people were communicating with ChatGPT as a therapist, as a way of, hopefully alleviating depression. And what they saw was fascinating, which was um, when people talk to ChatGPT, or I know, actually, I'm not sure it was ChatGPT, but when people talk to the large language model therapist, they, their scores on depression got significantly better. In other words, it was working. So the therapy session with GPT was working. The catch was this. They didn't tell the people in this test that they were communicating with an AI. They thought they were communicating with a person. And uh-huh. then at some point they told them, I don't know whether it was inclusion in the test or whatever, and their scores devolved again. Wow. They got more depressed. I gotta see this study, that's amazing. I know, but I think it speaks to what you're saying and I would agree with you that there is a certain magic to real human beings, right? That, that yeah. even if we're able to create living things and i think we will be able to by the way in other worlds you know like even if there's a virtual world with ais that have sort of grown up there and live there yeah i think that they will be more compelling to each other in a sense than they will be to us or we to them for that matter yeah like i think that like we crave experiences with those who have lived in the same world and faced the same adversity and you know grown up in the same or roughly the same way that we have and i think that there's always going to be this like gap between us and ai yeah you know and and, another, and we're not going to be able to just replace people and of course my god i hope we don't right because it feels right. to me like there's this basic like if we're using technology to move us apart from each other we are going towards despair right, right. and if we're moving toward each other which i think on a good day second life does yeah then we're moving in the right direction exactly yeah i mean that would kind of be the, the the basic response, I think, to all of this AI is it has to be enhancing the human-to-human connection. And anything that doesn't, we should be very skeptical about. Either it's not going to be appealing, it's not going to scale, or uh, really, yeah, um, you know, we'll get bored of it. We'll get bored, anything. yeah. Maybe it'll be self-limiting or maybe we'll need to enact regulation or whatever to keep yeah. ourselves from going down those roads. I certainly do worry. 
Yeah, I certainly yeah. do worry that the combination of AI and advertising is a deadly combination. Oh yeah. I mm -hmm. saw that announcement, Norway, Norway banning Facebook uh, from doing targeted ads, personalized ads, I think yesterday. Oh yeah. I don't know if you saw that. I was like, oh, no. whoa. Oh, that's good, yeah. These ways in which the EU is like now kind of leading in terms yeah. of exploring what the relationship between government and communities right. and these tech companies should be. I mean, it's wild. Like it's it, the typical Silicon Valley model, like Sam Altman kind of forces us all on the trolley problem. and says, hey, by the way, I got a trolley <laughs> going towards you all, um, but we'll work something out, right? But we got to keep moving. Let's go push, push, push. I've never heard button. that. I've never heard anybody say that. That's so beautiful. Yeah. You're saying Sam Altman. Yeah. In, in his version of the trolley problem, we are on the main yeah. track. <laughs> yeah. Guess what? You're in the my trolley problem. <laughs> That's fantastic. What, you know, in, in closing, like, what advice would you give? Gosh, you've been following this stuff so yeah. deeply. I guess one question would be like, what advice would you give to those who would come after you and are like seeking to understand virtual worlds, right? Like, yeah. what would you tell them to do? I just talk to communities, talk to communities. It's yeah. really, well, and I think that's the insight you have is like, we can go, you know, have someone go in and wander the world Yeah, because this is what people are doing are amazing. And it's, it's just a new way of engaging with people that you might not have met before. And so the communities that emerge, we've already seen are already amazing. And there's so much going on, especially in these newer platforms that, you know, uh, people don't take them seriously in part, not just because they're kids, but because people aren't writing about them. They're not exploring them and really yeah. talking to the community. Now, uh, uh, the whole metaverse hype wave that we just had, a lot of it drove me crazy uh, for many reasons. But one of the reasons was um, all these people talking about how exciting it is were not talking to the community. They were talking to Zuckerberg. They were talking to people that weren't actually <laughs> in it and right. actually creating a new culture. And really, that's the thing that's still happening. And that's the unexplored country that needs to be explored. I have to say, I think, you know, it was such an interesting thing that you did in Second Life to have you in there as this embedded journalist, as we called you, you know, where you really were just wandering around the world and and, yeah. and writing news. I, I remember that story that you know where I met the CEO of Reuters and uh, at an event and he yeah. asked me, what could we do? And I, I was like, uh, 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 and I guess partially because you'd been doing your thing already, I was like, you can <laughs> open a bureau in Second Life. Yeah. Will you open a bureau? Yeah. And he was like, give me five minutes. And it was, you know, you know, it was an amazing remember, story. He yeah. came back and he's like, okay, we'll do it. And I was like, whoa, okay, that was a big decision. Yeah. But yeah, like that idea of being on the ground matters so much um i would reiterate that like we were talking about earlier that neither of us even for the amount of time that we spent in second life we would not like call ourselves uh that we live there we wouldn't say that we live there and i think it's so important right like the closest you can get to living there is the only way you're going to understand something as unusual as a virtual world right yeah and it does seem a little bit superficial that you've got like big tech now sort of saying Oh, that's easy. You know, that's just we'll. You know, that's just another feature or whatever. Right. And it's like, you know, yeah. No, yeah. it's not. It's not. Yeah. Well, look. I hope you. Um, I hope we keep you reporting on this, in the way that you're I'd doing. Like to, yeah. the World notes in the book and metaverse that matters. Here you oh, go. We don't. Thank you. We have one of those fancy editing things where it just pops up in the window. <laughs> um, uh, but it's been great to have you doing the work oh, that you're doing. Awesome, I hope you keep doing it. I'm glad we got a chance to do this. For sure. It's great. We'll keep Talk doing to it. Soon. Talk soon.